And so what John is going to do is he's going to write what Jesus shows him, how great Jesus is, and he's going to send it to these seven churches. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. And thank you for listening into episode 31 of Working with the Word. This is it. We've come to our last episode in our whole story series, and we want to start with a special thanks for taking this journey with us through different parts of the Bible. We hope that it has helped you see what God has done for you. Today, we're talking about the book of Revelation. Like every other episode that we've done so far, there's a lot more to say about this book than what we'll say today, because we want to focus on how Revelation fits into the whole story, and especially as it brings the Bible to its fitting conclusion. But before we start in Revelation, we need to set the stage. So let's dive right in and talk about genre and apocalyptic literature. What, what do we mean when we talk about apocalyptic literature, and why is it so important for us to understand that in order to understand Revelation? Something we referenced in our Epistles episode was that some people might look at Revelation as an epistle or a group of epistles as we look in chapters 2 and 3 and see these letters that are written to these seven churches. However, like we mentioned towards the end of that episode, though, the content and the way that Revelation is structured is not like a typical letter like we see Paul write or Peter write or James write. What we see here is that there's this genre known as apocalyptic literature that might seem unfamiliar to us, but would have been common in the days of the first century, especially people who have a Jewish background or have an acquaintance with the Jewish scriptures, would be familiar with this genre of writing. So you wouldn't read Revelation the same you would read Romans? No, I definitely wouldn't say that, as already Romans is different from some of the other epistles. The way you would read Revelation is definitely different from the way you would go into reading any of those other books, Romans, Philippians, Philemon, any of them. I think we're going to come in with maybe a different understanding of the genre. So apocalyptic literature just giving a definition to help us understand that. We hear that word apocalyptic, and we think end of the world. That word has kind of taken on that meaning. I'm not sure that's really appropriate to say that's the actual definition, but we hear stuff about like the apocalypse, or this is apocalyptic type of events, and that we think of destruction, terrible, bad things. Apocalyptic literature is simply defined as this, a story written in a time of crisis and distress, that is given by otherworldly beings explaining how God will reverse everything so that the righteous will triumph. That's a definition taken from a book by Mark Roberts, who we've had on our program before, his book, Understanding Apocalyptic Literature. We think about the time of crisis in the days of Revelation, where we see Christians are under persecution. We have an otherworldly being who gives the message, as we think about Jesus being described there in chapter 1 and in other places throughout the book as well as we see God was going to reverse everything so that the righteous will triumph. Yes, it's a crisis. Yes, there are difficult things happening for God's people. But spoiler alert, God is victorious in the end. If you don't know that by now, we're going to make that point throughout our episode today to know that God is victorious. Some things that readers of apocalyptic literature would expect, they would expect to be familiar with this type of stuff. Again, this is a genre of literature that became popular sometime 
around post-exile days, especially among the Jewish people. And so they would be aware of this type of writing. They would be expecting the three S's, the supernatural. They would expect to be seeing signs. They would expect to see some type of symbols. They would expect to understand the message. I don't think that they read this message from John and thought, huh, well, that completely makes no sense whatsoever, and that must be written for some people to come 2,000 years later on the other side of the world in Western civilization. No, I think that they meant for it to be understood, and they would understand in their own day and in, in their own time. And ultimately, this is to be a hopeful message for them. So what are some challenges when thinking about reading apocalyptic literature? We think about how this isn't really a familiar genre of Scripture to us. We have the book of Revelation in the New Testament. There are other sections in Scripture, something like Ezekiel or Daniel or Zechariah. Sections of those books are also written in this type of genre of apocalyptic literature. But those are also challenging sections of Scripture. Again, maybe just because we're unfamiliar with them. There's apocalyptic writing outside of the Bible as well, things we might call extra-biblical type of stuff that might be written by Jews in the same time period as well. So again, this is a genre they would be familiar with, really a story that things are going to get worse before they get better type of thing. We see that maybe we're just unfamiliar with these books like Revelation or Ezekiel, or maybe we're unfamiliar with other Old Testament connections that are made in the book of Revelation. We might be expecting or we might want to see a linear timeline of events, say, okay, I'm starting in chapter 1, and from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 22, it's going to be a step-by-step breakdown about how the end of the world is going to happen. But that's not really what Revelation is doing. That's not what it's about. It's more set up in a series of cycles, and it's going to see how those cycles are meant to talk about judgment that God's going to bring. And sometimes a challenge that we might see the most often with Revelation is that we just get too focused on the details. We might think, okay, in in chapter 7, there's 144,000. Who are the 12,000 specifically from the tribe of Asher being represented as? When's the last time we really wanted to dive into the tribe of Asher? I had to look up, is there any other time I thought about the tribe of Asher? I think the prophetess Anna, and I had to look that up. It wasn't like it just came to my head. So all of that to say, we do want to do our best to come to a true understanding of what these signs and symbols and details mean, But we don't want to come to bad conclusions. We don't want to go overboard. So a good way to make sure we don't come to bad conclusions would be to do careful observation in our study of Revelation before we do that proper interpretation, something that goes all the way back to episode four in our program to think about all of that. Yeah, one of the things that I think is helpful to remember when we approach Revelation is that it's called Revelation. Sometimes we look at Revelation as it's a like a, a book with a hidden code or a hidden meaning that you've got to crack the code, you've got to find some secret key somewhere in order to decode it all. And that's not the point of the book. The book is called a revealing. And so it's not a hidden message, but rather it's an unveiling of the message. And the basic message is that despite the trials that these Christians are going through, And by extension, what we may go through, God still rules, and we will be victorious in the end. Now, that's a very simplified summary, (laughs) but it's just helpful to remember that, you know, this is a revealing, not a hiding of the message. Exactly. So as we get into what's in the book, what are some things we can expect to see? 
as we've been doing this whole story series, we like to look at these different sections of Scripture or look at particular books and say, what's going to help me in my understanding of the whole story? We want to know some about the message. So we're focusing on the idea of some of these visions that John sees, not necessarily going about them in order, but really think about the themes of victory that we find that the saints will enjoy and the theme of judgment, that those who are opposed to God and his plans, particularly the terrifying things we read about in chapters 12 and 13, like the dragon and beast, we'll get to those, seeing how all of those themes play out in these different visions. So Emerson, let's begin actually at the beginning and talk about the vision that we first see. What's the first thing we think about as we open up the book of Revelation? Yeah, the visions start with Jesus, Jesus, the Son of Man. And actually, the title comes from the very first verse of the book, which says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. And so, the revelation of Jesus Christ. What that means is this book is going to reveal who Jesus is, especially in times when his people are suffering distress and persecution. And so the very first thing that John hears and sees in this book, the first vision, is of Jesus himself. It's this majestic picture of Jesus described as a king, as a priest. Later on in chapter 1, verse 12 John turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. He sees Jesus standing among the seven golden lampstands. He's got his golden sash around his waist. His hair and his head are white like wool. His eyes are like flame uh, fire. His, he's got this sword coming out of his mouth. It's just a, a very m- a magnificent picture of, of the authority and the power of Jesus. And Jesus describes himself as having authority over time in verse 17. He says, I am the first and the last. He describes himself as having authority over death in verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. There's a whole story connection there to the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying to John is, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That's verse 11 of chapter 1. And so what John is going to do is he's going to write what Jesus shows him, write how great Jesus is, and he's going to send it to these seven churches. Now, in chapter 2 and 3, Jesus gives very specific messages to each of those churches, and we'd like to talk more about that at another time. They're very practical and applicable messages for us, but the most important thing to understand is just how really the first three chapters kind of lay the historical background for the book. Remember, and this is something we've gone back to throughout our program, is that the Bible was not written to us, but for us. And here in Revelation, I think that's an important distinction. We need to read Revelation in light of these seven churches' situation of suffering and persecution and trial. And the basic message to them is that Jesus still rules. Be faithful, because Jesus has overcome, and you will too. Something you mentioned when you read the beginning in verse 1 was the fact that these things must soon take place. And even we see in verse 19 of chapter 1, 
Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. All that to go to the point what you said about how this is written to those people. Again, this isn't written to people to apply to World War One or World War II mm-hmm. or whatever crazy event's going to happen in 2024. But the whole point is to see it from what is Jesus saying to these people and those messages of Jesus rules, be faithful to him, are so important for us, even if we're not facing those same events or seeing those events specifically play out in our lives. So from that introduction to Jesus and seeing that he comes on the scene and that he gives this message and he's the background of this message and the source of this message, we need to see that there's this problem that's being described, the crisis, like we mentioned earlier, there's this persecution coming from evil people. A couple of things from chapter 2 and chapter 3. We see Jesus says to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, 9, and 10, I know your tribulation. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. There's tribulation. There's suffering going on there among that church or going to be happening soon in that church. We see in the church at Pergamum, Jesus says in chapter 2, 13, Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed. People are dying on behalf of their faith and what they're standing up for and believing in. Jesus says to each of these churches in chapter 2, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 26, chapter 3, verse 5, verse 12, verse 21, one of the many repeated phrases throughout the structure of these letters is to the one who conquers. There is persecution that's going on, persecution that's coming from evil, from wicked, sinful people, and the encouragement is that you need to overcome that evil. Yeah, the the mention of Antipas is really interesting because, you know, a lot of Revelation is so symbolic, and a lot of times we have to wonder, you know, what exactly is this beast over here? We'll we'll get to that, but but Antipas here seems to be a literal, like, historical figure, and it's just interesting that he's mentioned in that way, and there's a lot of debate on on the date of Revelation. We're not going to get into that when it was written, but whether you take it to be an earlier writing or a later writing, history corroborates the fact that Christians went through hard times in the first century, and, and certain parts of the Roman Empire at certain decades. History corroborates the, the suffering that we see indicated here in Revelation by God's people. Absolutely. And so what we see God talking about as well in the book of Revelation is that that evil is going to be judged. This evil will be punished. Yes, Things are bad, and in fact, things are probably going to get worse before they get better, but know that that evil is going to be punished. And so we see these cycles of seven. Uh, We'll talk more about those in a second. The seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven bowls. But let's listen to this, how God is going to address this evil. When one of the seals is opened, this is Revelation 6, verse 9 through verse 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that had they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's one of those of take comfort, but also know, again, things are probably going to get bad before they get worse. Here are people who have died 
on behalf of their faithfulness to the Lord. And already, you know, this is some 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago, and we see people already saying, God, when are you going to do something and bring justice for what's happened to us? And God says, there's still some things that need to happen. More people are going to die, but those people are going to be avenged. God is going to bring judgment upon them. So as we read about these seven seals that are opened, or the seven trumpets that are blown, or the seven bowls that God's wrath is being poured out. These are different depictions of really the same idea of judgment that's going to come upon these evildoers, these persecutors, to show that God is victorious. To show all these things, you know, people riding on colorful horses, or parts of the forest, or parts of the land, or parts of the sea being turned to blood or destroyed, stars falling down from the skies, these great plagues with these terrifying creatures of locusts with people's faces and tails like scorpions, all of that crazy stuff that's happening is all to show God is going to bring judgment upon that evil and upon that wickedness. There's going to be victory. Yeah, and the fact that the we have these like cycles of seven, and numbers are really important in Revelation. They're very symbolic. Seven is a number of completeness and perfection. The judgment on evil is going to be perfect, but so is the victory that God's people experience. In, in Revelation, another one of the visions that John sees is a great crowd who are victorious. In between the sixth and seventh seals, John sees a crowd of people. Revelation chapter 7, they're first described as the 144,000, which is, again, a symbolic number. Later on, they're described as a great multitude, which no one could count. Uh, I think this is probably the same group of people, mm-hmm. but just described in a different way. In chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And then one of the angels who John is talking with says, Who are these? And John says, Lord, you know. And verse 14 the angel actually identifies who these people are. He says, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God. So these are the people, you know, going back to the souls in chapter 6, who have been beheaded, they're under the altar, they're crying out, when are you going to avenge our blood? Now we see them avenged. These are the same people who are now not under the altar hiding from their persecutors anymore, but they're standing before the throne of God, and they're praising God. And the same group is going to appear again in chapter 14, just another reminder how this cycle goes through. But, you know, we want to be in that crowd of of victorious people. We've got to persevere. We've got to press on. We've got to be faithful to God. But there's also an interesting contrast with, we've got this great crowd of victory, but there's another group of people who are also described in Revelation. Yeah, there's this great crowd. They're known as the worshipers of the beast. So if you think about chapter 12, chapter 13, before we get to chapter 14 and that great crowd shows up, the great victorious crowd shows up again, we want to begin by thinking about this contrast of the great crowd of these beast worshipers. As opposed to the great crowd described in Revelation 7, we read about an undefined number of people who will worship the beast and the dragon from Revelation 12 and Revelation 13. This beast of the sea, 
beast of the land. Later we see this reference to Babylon and her being described as this woman. The beast of the land, a.k.a. this false prophet who's going to get people to worship the beast of the sea, who's been given authority from the dragon to make war against the saints. And all of this we read about in this section of people who are opposed to and trying to make war against the people who are in that victorious crowd, ultimately making war against the Lamb, against Jesus, and against God. I mean, think about Revelation chapter 12. It's a terrifying scene of this horrific dragon just waiting to devour a child as a woman gives birth to it. Now, we see victory within that, and in fact, we see in verse 11, they conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 there. Again, the blood of the Lamb is a very symbolic part of Revelation to show that's the source of victory. That's what people had their robes washed in there in chapter 7. That's what we see appear in chapter 5. When the scroll can't be opened, you see this Lamb that was slain. And in other places, we'll see the idea that the blood of the Lamb is such an important part of all of this. But we read about this dragon, and a whole story connection to make is, What John says in chapter 12 and verse 9, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll make more Genesis 1 through 3 parallels here in just a little bit. But here we have, there in Genesis chapter 3, it's just described as the serpent, you know, deceived Mm -hmm. Eve. But here we have confirmation. John writes, and we have here in Scripture to say, That was Satan working in this all along. He's trying to see the world, trying to get a great group of people to follow him instead of following the Lamb, people who will be destroyed, who will be overcome by Jesus, by this great crowd, if they will fall down and worship him. Yeah, when you're talking about the dragon, and especially the beast that appears in chapter 13, this is where I think our Old Testament connections really come in handy to help us understand what these are talking about. Yes. You know, we can spend a lot of time trying to figure out who this historical figure or nation is described by the beast. But really, you can't do that until you first understand the connection to the Old Testament. So, for instance, the beast is described as he's like a leopard, he's also like a bear, his mouth is like the mouth of a lion, and he's been given authority. All All of those different kinds of animals come from the book of Daniel, Mm -hmm. where different nations are described in those terms. You've got this beast that is described as a lion, uh, a leopard with wings. And so you have to make those connections, and that's the the intention there, is we're trying to understand these symbols. They're symbols which point us back to some of the things that God has said in the Old Testament, and then we can start, start to understand, okay, how does that relate to these Christians at this time? So, you know, these beasts are, are, there's not like they're just coming out of nowhere. (laughs) It's kind of a conglomeration of all of the Old Testament symbols kind of in one, in one package. Yeah. And I think I've heard it described before, each of those symbols in Daniel are meant to represent, here are nations that are very man-focused. They're more beasts than man that God made man to be, rather than bearing God's image, they're more like violent creatures around them. So these are representations of nations who are opposed to God, just as we see all of that coming together, not to say here's one mega nation opposed to God, but just, again, it's that same point of here's a representation of people who oppose God and his work and his plan. 
Now, as you read chapter 12 and chapter 13, it's pretty terrifying, powerful, destructive, evil creatures that we read about. And if we had just those chapters, we might think, man, what could we do about all of this? I mean, what could I do against a terrifying dragon and beasts with multiple heads and creatures that are rising up out of the sea or out of the land that are getting a whole bunch of people to follow them? What could I do about that? Well, I alone could probably do nothing, but that's where Revelation 14 comes into play, where it talks about how the Lamb appears, how John says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Yes, these are terrifying creatures, and I love in times that I've done an overview of Revelation with people stopping at chapter 13 and kind of leaving it as the cliffhanger. It's the what do, you, what do we do about this? Chapter 14 is the answer to that. Say, well, here's what's going to happen. The Lamb is going to lead people to victory. And so we read more about how God will not let the evil, the wickedness, and the sin of the followers of these beasts or Babylon or the beast or the dragon themselves go unpunished. Each is going to be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. For that, we encourage you to see more in Revelation 17 through 20 and see the connection about how, as terrifying as these things may be, they're not going to be victorious. They may get people to fall away from serving the Lord or deceive people from serving the Lord, but they are not the ultimate victor. So as we end the book, we want to end with Jesus actually, again, go back to the Lamb of God that we would be introduced to in chapter 5 and see that victory now from the judgment of those beasts. So Revelation begins with Jesus, and it also ends with Jesus. He's described in a couple of different ways from chapters 19 all the way to the end. In chapter 19, we see him coming on a white horse as a conquering king. You see that in chapter 19, verse 11. Some of the same descriptions that we saw in chapter 1, his eyes like a flame of fire, He's got many crowns on his head. And his name, verse 13, is the Word of God. He is called faithful and true. He's described in verse 16 as the King of kings and Lord of lords, which is kind of the ancient Hebrew way of saying he is the greatest and there's no other like him. And so you you see him as this victorious king who conquers his enemies, who brings his followers to victory. You also see him in chapter 21 described in a little bit less violent way. He's described here as a groom who is ready to sweep his bride away on their wedding day. And in chapter 21, he's called the lamb over and over again, six or seven times just in chapter 21, because this marriage between Jesus and his people, the church, is only made possible by Jesus' sacrificial death. We've talked about how the blood of the lamb is so important It's because of his sacrifice that we can have this relationship with Jesus. Think about how Revelation describes our relationship with Jesus as a marriage. Our joy in Christ should be the same as a new bride who rejoices in her new husband. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is described as this victor who comes and he, he wraps his people up in safety and comforts them and brings them home. And what a, what a hopeful image for people who are going through trials and sufferings. And then at the very end of the book, chapters 21 and 22, we have just a remarkable whole story connection that really takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. When we first started this whole story series, 
we began by talking about, this is episode 15, we talked about the essential elements of a story. How every good story starts with introducing the characters, uh, and we see them introduced in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, God, man, Satan. Then the characters find themselves in conflict, and here in the Bible, sin breaks man's relationship with God, and the question of the conflict is, well, how can this relationship be fixed? And that conflict eventually leads to a climactic conflict, which is the whole story we've been talking about, Jesus's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And then that brings the whole story to a resolution or a conclusion. And the book of Revelation is that conclusion to the whole story. And so Revelation 21 and 22 takes us full circle all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 1 through 3, we see man in a garden, and there's so many connections. So I'll just mention a few of these connections. In 21.1, you see a new heavens and earth being described, almost like a, a recreation of the world. You see a marriage of God and his people, kind of like God created the woman and then brought her to the man for marriage. God dwells among his people in chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, just like God dwelt or walked in the garden with his people. There is no temple needed in chapter 21, verse 22, in this relationship. There is no temple in the garden because God was there, and there is no need for this symbol because God had a perfect relationship with his people. And especially in chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, it describes God's relationship with his people as a garden like Eden. There's the river, there's the tree of life on either side of the river. There's, in verse 3, it says, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. That idea of there being no curse takes us back to the reason why the curse entered the world to begin with, and that's sin. In Genesis 3, God cursed the ground because of the man. And God removes that curse here in Revelation. And so the point is that the problem of sin is finally resolved. The conflict of the story is finally concluded. This sin, which has broken our fellowship with God, is finally taken away, and we are restored to a perfect relationship with God because of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So we've usually had a to be continued, I think, since our Genesis episode. But rather than to be continued, instead of those three words that appear on the screen, now there's just two. It's the end. Here we have the ultimate conclusion of the whole story. God wins. God's in control. Worthy is the Lamb. God has completed his plan that he had from the beginning to reconcile those sinners to himself through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of his son, Jesus Christ. We repeat that phrase over and over again to impress in us the fact that that's what the Bible is about, and to see how God has accomplished that. The encouragement to the Christian of John's day, as well as the encouragement to us as well, is to consider and think about the side that we want to be on in this final revelation. In this final conclusion, there's the great crowd who is victorious, there's the great crowd that is going to be thrown into the lake of fire with the dragon and the beast and and with death. So will we be those who conquer and overcome through the strength and grace of Jesus Christ, 
We want to emphatically say with John as he closes this book, come, Lord Jesus. So as we leave you with a challenge today, we want you to read Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And if you can, put in your own words how these two chapters bring the whole story of the Bible to a conclusion. And particularly think about how this helps you in your relationship and have a better hope in Jesus Christ for yourself. Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. And thank you for following along with us through this whole story series. If you haven't already, we'd like to ask a favor of you to please rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. We're going to be on break for the next few weeks while Jeff moves over to East Texas. And during that time, we're going to re-release some of our previous episodes on inductive Bible study. So please stay subscribed and catch up on those episodes. While we're not producing new content, we are going to have stuff for you to review. So after the break, we're going to get back into an inductive study of a particular book of the Bible, that being the book of Zephaniah. Emerson and I are going to be refreshing ourselves on observation, interpretation, and application as we get ready for that study, and we hope you will as well. If you want to reach us while we're on break, you can always reach out to us with other questions or topics or books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word. We've gotten some stuff recently we're looking forward to trying to implement maybe in the end of this year or in future episodes that should be good stuff to consider. We want to encourage you to continue to engage with us. You can do so by reaching out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly today, we want to simply express our thanks to you, our listeners. Whether you've been with us from the beginning or this was your first episode, we greatly appreciate your support, your engagement, and especially your prayers. To God be the glory. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. book of the Bible, especially that being, or particularly, wow, that doesn't make any sense. So after the book...